our great God and Heavenly Father, please do give us soft hearts. Please do open our ears that, that we might hear your truth and we might trust you, the God who speaks in your Son. Amen. It's surprising reading the Gospel. I don't know, I keep being surprised anyway as I read Matthew. Uh, it's how little the disciples grasp. Uh, they, Jesus keeps showing them things and they don't get it and they don't get it and they don't get it and eventually they get it. Actually, it's surprising how many times we need to hear the same things. We hear it and we hear it and we hear it and eventually we begin to get it. In some ways, this passage we're looking at is just another passage which is talking about faith and repentance. But actually, another passage talking about faith and repentance, talking about what it is to trust Jesus, talking about what it is to have a life that's changed as we follow Jesus, is exactly what I need. And I suspect it's exactly what you need. Chapter 18, we see the penny drop for the disciples. The disciples have recognized that Jesus is Christ the King, that he is the Son of the living God, that he is the, he is the one who brings them into a relationship with God where they know God as their Father. They are sons who are free. And Jesus is building his church. He's gathering his people. The kingdom of God has a king and the king has a people. He's building a new community of people who know him as their king. The disciples have recognized that Jesus is Christ, the king, that the king has, is the king of the kingdom of heaven uh, is gathering his people. But they've also twigged that the Pharisees and the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are rejecting the king. As recently as chapter 15, they were pointing out to Jesus, hey, hold on, you're offending the Pharisees. But it seems that now they've finally grasped that those privileged religious leaders are rejecting Jesus. That by rejecting the king, they are not in the kingdom. So king who has a people and leaders who aren't even among the people. They see the privilege vacuum and they say to the king, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Peter, James and John were seeing their privilege going up the mountain with Jesus. Peter is often um, out front for commendation, but also out front uh, for correction. Uh, there was that comment that Jesus made about John the Baptist being the greatest so far, but actually anyone in the kingdom is greater than him. Uh, at that time that Jesus talked about being least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what they're wondering now is who is the greatest of the great. Jesus asks a child to come. He gets a child to come and stand among them. And he highlights and underlines what he's going to say next by saying, Truly I say to you, listen very carefully to this. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They ask who's the greatest in? And Jesus answers, this is who's in. For them and us, it's about being like children. Before you even think about who's great, you need to be clear about who is in. And you're only in now, and you'll only be in at the end if you're like a child. 
How so? What is it about children that Jesus is saying we need to copy? Uh, is it a purity in essence? Immaturity, responsibility, gullibility? Well, no, I think insignificance. It's their opposite of greatness that Jesus is saying to imitate. The humility of knowing their own insignificance. They ask the status question and Jesus says, well, be like the ones who have no status. First century Jewish children didn't think the world revolved around them. They were very clear that it didn't. Listen to this sentence. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not to be looked up to. To be humble like a child is to think it's not about me because actually I realize it's not about me. I'm not the greatest because actually I realize I'm not the greatest. Jesus' first words in the Sermon on the Mount were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the, one, are the ones who realize that God is their only hope. Jesus says a whole lot about uh, behavior in the Sermon on the Mount. He even talks to those who are financially rich. But his first word to his people is to say that they must be ones who are poor in spirit. Ones who realize they cannot help themselves. They're not the ones whose self-image is so positive that they think, oh, God's going to be glad to have me. The poor in spirit realize they can bring nothing to God and they come bringing nothing to God. The poor in spirit, the people who are in the kingdom of heaven, come to God knowing that they deserve only his judgment, that they can pay nothing to change that, that they can do nothing to change that, and they come relying on his kindness and mercy. So many people think that being uh, one of Jesus' people is about living a good life to get a good life. Our pride kind of would like that. We like to stand on our own achievements. But the truth is that we need to crawl. We need to come humbly. That's poverty of spirit. That's the childlike humility that Jesus is talking about here in chapter 18. Helpless ones who know they are helpless. Not, Not pretending they think they are, but who know they are helpless. Coming to Jesus. The person who truly humbles themselves like this child is already the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. What's true in the end will be is already true now. The truly humble are the truly great. They're the ones who will be in the kingdom of heaven. It's critical to get this if you're curious but not yet committed. If you're kind of checking out Christian things, it's critical that you get this. That we are not gathered... <laughs> We're not gathering around God's word. Like God is not saying to us, here's how you can lift your standard so they'll accept you. He's saying, realize that actually you can't be accepted by what you do. You can only be accepted through what Christ has done. Come humbly like a child, poor in spirit. Turn, become like children. See, the disciples asked, who is the greatest? This isn't really the answer that we're looking for, is it? Which is why they need to change, why they need to turn, why they need to become like children. Verses 5 and 6 mention uh, one such child and these little ones. But the perspective has changed. 
Jesus is no longer how to think how you think about you. He's moved on to how you think about children. Whoever receives one such child, but whoever causes one of these little ones. The promise and the warning are about relating to children. Though the first focus isn't necessarily those who haven't had a whole lot of birthdays. Uh, the one such child is a, it's a one such child that these little ones are the, these little ones who believe in me. The sort of child, the type of little one that Jesus is talking about are the ones he's just been talking about in verses one to four. Children, women, men who humble themselves and become like children. He's talking to you about how you think about adults and children who have humbled themselves like children and entered the kingdom. It's a promise and a warning about relating to disciples, to followers, to believers, to Christians. And he's speaking to some of those disciples, isn't he? Why does he say this to them? Why speak this warning, this promise and warning to them? Well, to clarify their thinking about how they treat each other and how they are treated by others. Verse 5, to receive a believer, well, you're receiving Christ. And to receive a believer in Christ's name. Kingdom people accept the king's people. And accept the king's people in his name when they accept them precisely because they are the king's people. You see, for his sake and submitting to his lordship, we've accepted our own lack of status before God, recognize that we are entirely dependent on his grace, his generosity. Well, that sets us free to accept each other, to accept each other as equal. Not to be trying to outperform each other, but to, to, to accept each other as equal. I've received mercy, though I deserve judgment. You have received mercy, though you deserve judgment. We accept each other. None of us look down on other believers from the heights of greatness. That's the reality. And in verse 6, Jesus warns against getting ideas about our own importance and our own status that will cause other Christians to sin. In other words, stumble, the one we've come across in recent weeks, that will cause other Christians to stumble. I think what he's getting at is that the shift from being poor in spirit to thinking about our own greatness and our own achievements, actually the impact that that can have on others. See, to relate to others as if we've achieved greatness in God's eyes, stand above and apart from them, well, it might make them stumble (laughs) up to our level, cease to be like children who realize their utter dependence on Christ. If your arrogance fosters an interruption in childlike humility and trust in them, Jesus says, it would be better for you to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's verse 6. Death by drowning is horrific. But Jesus is saying much better to drown than cause one of Christ's people to stumble in their relationship with him. Why? Well, because making them stumble is going against God and God will repay. That's what verse 7 says, isn't it? That's why it's better to drown. Better to drown than verse 7. Because he will repay. He'll repay the world. Uh, the people who don't know Christ as king. Uh, this is the warning uh, to those who might oppose Christ's people precisely because and as a consequence of their rejection of Christ and of God. 
It's a warning to unbelievers who deliberately provoke believers to to stumble in their relationship with Christ as king. God will repay. Such temptations must come. They're part of life while we wait. But their inevitability does not remove responsibility. Their inevitability does not remove responsibility from those who provoke others to stumble. And for those who are committed to following Jesus, hearing this warning to those who may tempt them to stumble in their relationship with Jesus is a reminder about how carefully we must walk. We must walk carefully as there are pressures coming in from without, from others. But it's not just about what comes in from out there. Verse 8, there are things that about you that cause you to stumble in sin. There are attitudes and habits that contribute to your own stumbling. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Putting that in terms of the parable of the soils, are your attitudes... Are there attitudes that make you vulnerable to tribulation and persecution? Such that as soon as you suffer for following Jesus, well, you're going to be out of there. Or are there priorities about life? Are there things that wealth promises to deliver to you that will push you towards compromise and drift? Jesus isn't talking here about self-mutilation. It's... This is the Jesus who teaches that sin rises up from our hearts. That's where the surgery is required. Denying ourselves, saying no to our understanding, to our will, to our desires, because his understanding, his will, his desires are so much better than ours. That's what it is to treat him as king. Jesus uses this violent language to insist, to insist that we must be merciless with everything within ourselves that might cause us to drift from Jesus. Because to fall away from him is to fall into judgment. I suspect that like me, you need to hear this urgency. (laughs) Our inclination as we think about our sin, our disobedience. Our inclination can be closer to, if your eye causes you to sin, cover it over with one hand for a little while. Or, Or put an eye patch on for a day or two. Jesus says, pluck it out. <laughs> Reading this got me uh, thinking about some things that uh, the, uh, an old English preacher um, from centuries ago, John Owen, says in his book on mortification of sin, on putting sin to death. He says things like, be killing sin or it will be killing you. About sinful habits, he points out uh, in an age before antibiotics that old neglected wounds are often mortal, often deadly, and always dangerous about how necessary it is to always be on the, on the offense. He says, as sin never dies of itself, if it is not daily killed, it will always gather strength. So how to destroy it? How to destroy it if it's not a matter of physical self-harm? Well, see it for what it is. See it for what it is in the light of the gospel 
and in the context of relationship with God, our Savior. See, I think there is some power in standing back and just saying and asking ourselves, uh, what would I think of someone else who did this? Who thought this? Or, or, or to even just simply think, that's wrong, I shouldn't do it. But we need to bring it back into relationship with God to see the reality of our rebellion. One critical tactic is to see our sin through the lens of the gospel and relationship with God our Savior. That means relief or forgiveness, but also conviction of seeing our sin as it truly is. Perhaps there's something you're struggling with. There are various things you're struggling with. You keep sinning. You keep coming for forgiveness. You keep feeling the weight lifted. And then back at it again. But if you're honest, your approach does feel more like covering your eye, temporary eye patch. Certainly not painful eye extraction. I really find John John unhelpful in this, so I'm going to... He writes in ancient language. He'll try and reword a paragraph uh, from his writings. Uh, And just to spell out a little of what I think it means to see our sin through the lens of the gospel and relationship with God our Savior for the purpose of deepening our sorrow, our grief, our conviction that that our sin is wrong, is against God. So you do need to see Jesus as the one who was pierced for your sin, for that sin, and to feel the weight of that. To, to say to yourself, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Is this my response to his kindness? Christ died to wash my heart. Have I defiled it? Have I defiled the heart the Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell in? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head with boldness before him? Do I think my experience of relationship with him of so little value that for this sin's sake, I have compromised my experience of it, left little room for him. In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, comfort. I have despised them all and valued instead the sin in my heart. Have I come to say God as my father and then approached him to provoke him by disobeying him? Was my soul washed to make room for new ways of rebellion? Well, no, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. Shall I aim to undermine the very purpose of Christ's death in my daily life? Shall I grieve the spirit with whom I am sealed for the day of redemption. One suggests just mull on those sorts of things daily. Save your specific sins, specific rebellions can stand under that weight. If 
they can. Well, there's previous questions to answer. So we really mustn't downgrade uh, the downgrade our sin with phrases like I know I shouldn't, I, I know it's wrong, but or I've always struggled, or it's just the way I am. We need to let what Christ says here about sin shape our attitude to it. If you've got a soldier going in, if you're a soldier going into battle against a relentless enemy, your duty would be to fight until that enemy is dead. Jesus says you're not done in your battle against sin until you have fought it and it no longer lives to fight another day. Be relentless, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It is your enemy and if you pull back before it lies dead, you have stopped short of what Christ calls you to. Verses 10 to 14, feed that relentlessness against our own sin and feed that relentless, relentless refusal to, to push other believers off course. So say that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see my, the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now some folk argue from here for the idea of guardian angels for each believer, but Really, the verse doesn't require it, and other passages don't suggest it. Most likely what Jesus is saying is that their angels, the way of talking about them, seeing the Father, that they're glorified selves, seeing the heavenly Father's face, and being his delight. That's what the parable says, isn't it? The man has a hundred sheep. And one of them goes astray. He does not leave, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. The shepherd cares about all his sheep. He doesn't want to see any of them lost. His delight is to see those who wander returned. How much more our heavenly father the Heavenly Father is unwilling for any of these little ones, any of his children, to be lost. If that's his will, it's shocking. It's shocking that anyone would seek to see those little ones, his children, go astray, or, or that anyone would think lightly of doing things that might cause others to stumble and stray. Seeing our Heavenly Father's delight to save, his determination to save, it sets us up to see our dependence. It sets us up to, to live in humble dependence with that childlike humility that doesn't look inside to find us some sense of greatness. It clarifies our attitude to believers who are thriving and to those who are struggling. None of us look down on other believers from heights of greatness. All of us must be careful lest we, lest we oppose God in his good purpose. The good news of his rescue is freedom from judgment through Christ who suffered for us. Freedom to live a resurrection life. That freedom includes freedom to live a new life. God's salvation includes transformation, not as an activity that we leave the gospel to do, rather as following Jesus with our own cross, denying ourselves and saying yes to our king's understanding and will and desires. Seeing our sin through the lens of the gospel in relationship with God our Savior, 
so that our instinct is more and more to turn from it and to follow closely after Christ. Let's ask our Father to work those things by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not call us to earn what we could not earn, but rather that your Son gave himself and paid their ransom. Thank you for the rescue that comes to all who humbly trust in him. Father, please make us careful in our love and support for one another, lest we cause each other to stumble. Father, please make us determined, relentless in the fight against sin, that we would not dishonor you, that we would not treat the great rescue that you have brought in your Son as if it is no value to us, that we would pursue the life which pleases and honors you, our Father, our Savior, in your Son. Amen.